0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to LambdaCast. My name is David Kuntz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Johnson. Hey, everybody. And Logan Barnett. Howdy. We're back with part two of our sort of grand tour of functional programming. Clearly not exhaustive, as that would be impossible in a couple hours, but we're trying to give the big-picture overview of the, the main ideas in functional programming. So, uh, first off, I want to... Uh, We're a little more organized since the last time. We have a contact email. So if you have any comments about the show, uh, you want to request something or or tell us what you think, you can send us an email to contact at lambdacast.com. Lambdacast.com also will take you to the page where you can watch our shows or listen to our shows on SoundCloud. And there's also an RSS link there so you can subscribe. We're also on iTunes and google play store so you can subscribe through your typical podcast tools all right so first off i think we should review a little bit of what we talked about last episode so uh logan do you want to lead us off with kind of what we talked about last time
1: oh we went over a bunch of stuff right um we did mostly pure functions um doing controlled side effects
0: and immutability okay and can you just Quickly take us through each of those, or Aaron, if you want to.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I, since I was here last time, I can tell you about uh, most of these.
0: Why don't you go through and give us your your take on it?
2: Yeah, sure. So what we talked about last time were pure functions, which is basically something that doesn't um, have side effects, which we're going to go over with control side effects in a second. But a pure function doesn't really have contact with the outside world, so to speak. So you're not accessing a file server, you're not accessing, you know, the file system, a pure function will always return the same output given the same input is, or always have the exact same action, basically given the same input.
0: Well, so when you say action, that sort of, to me, implies side effect. Do you mean like,
2: Hmm, I mean that, uh, the exact same thing will happen with the same input every time,
0: but could that be a side effect?
2: Um, I believe you cannot, I believe you, no, that could not be because. So,
0: okay. So you could, I just want to make that, that real clear, not to like pick on you, but no, it's fine. Uh, you, you, you can't have an action in, in the traditional sense of like, I call this and something happens. Mm-hmm. It's only like I put something in and, and the same thing comes out. Yeah. When I say time.
2: action, I mean like I ask for the sum and I get the sum back.
0: I, I totally understand. Gotcha. Yeah. So the same computation occurs.
2: Right. Um, And yeah, as you said, well, as I mentioned before, there is no side effects. So it can actually be taking an action in the sense that it's changing um, something on, you know, changing something outside the function. Gotcha. Uh, So did I miss anything?
0: Um, Nope. I think, I think the real core thing there for your litmus test of a pure function is if you could write down a giant table of inputs and outputs, and you could say, given this input. I get that output and it, of course the inputs might be large if it's like a an array of numbers or a, a big complex object or something that might be quite awkward to write down but if you could theoretically write down the input and then on once in one column and draw an arrow and put the output in the other column and kind of say you know this input goes to that output this other input goes to that output if you could do that and you know not be lying when you say this input always produces that output then you have a pure function
2: as you mentioned, it, it can't have a side effect. It can't be writing to the f- file system, for example, or it can't be right. in, in no, the,
0: the file
1: system's an easy one to do because it's like reaching out and doing a buffer, but it also can't be touching anything in the application either.
0: Like it can't have a reference to a shared variable that it updates every time you call it or something like that. Right. Fair point, yeah. Now, if it's a purely internal variable that is in, like you can't detect that from outside the function... Then it's still fine. So technically, you could have something that memoizes and it updates that memoized like uh, dictionary, you know hash table kind of lookup thing. And if it uh, uses that to skip the computation and just kind of return the the value, the result of that computation, and if it hasn't, you know, ever seen the inputs, it does computation and stuffs it in the dictionary, but that dictionary never like escapes, then it's still a pure function, even though technically there is mutation going on internal, but that's like, kind of like an implementation detail.
2: I'd say one final thing as we're wrapping up your functions that I, I didn't mention as well is that we talked about how the goal is to have not only pure functions, because then your application can't really do anything, but as many pure functions as you can.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. They, so what you're you're saying here is that uh, you cannot build a useful application out of just pure functions. Yes, but it's desirable to build as much of your application out of pure functions as is reasonable.
2: Yep. I think, yeah, yeah. So that's one of the things we talked about last last week. Definitely,
0: that's a very good point.
2: So I think the second one Logan said was controlled side effects. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and that was so side effects, as we talked about, are what makes a pure function impure. Well, one of the things that can make a pure function not a pure function, which is doing things, for lack of a better word. Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, changing the world in some way. And and uh, we said side effects, and I'm super prone to using the word side effect. But I should clarify, it's actually effects of any kind, because this includes like reading from a database, the like, reading from a database doesn't change the database, at least theoretically, it doesn't change the database. Um, but it is an effect in the sense of you're relying on something that is not pure, that can change. Um. So we we actually want controlled effects in general, not just side effects. Like not not just results of changing something. Does that make sense? Does that distinction useful?
2: I, I actually so. actually didn't follow that time as a as a beginner. There, I didn't. I, I mean, I understand what you mean when you say that it's not just side effects. It's just effects. And I know what you mean when you say that reading the database would count as one. Um, but I didn't follow after that.
0: Oh, it's just that. We we want to have controlled side effects in the in the things that we change, but we also need to uh, control when we read from uh, sort of impure sources like a database or a network or a file system. Sure. That that falls in the same category of we put this at the edge of our application and we kind of mark it as this is powerful but dangerous. Uh, be careful with this stuff. Like it doesn't really matter if you're reading or writing; it's the same sort of thing. Yeah, because they makes, they have the same. Yeah, and they have the same characteristics of very difficult to test they require mocking um big setup you know routines to be able to put it in a testable state so if it has that feel it's clearly in this like effect category and i'm super guilty of like saying side effects when i mean effects i just want to make that distinction in case because uh, some people are really uh, surprised that for example um getting a random number is an effectful computation
1: it, it is an imperative languages right
0: well it, well, and, and in, I mean, you cannot have a pure... It, it, the way it is normally written, you can't have a pure function that is a random number generator.
1: But you'd usually give it, like, a seed.
0: Yeah, you can and say, the given new, the seed, produce a random number, but then you have to, like, and keep... the new generator. Well, right? yeah, that's what you have to do. You have to, like, then keep feeding the new generator back into the function, so it kind of produces a, a sequence. But the sort of, you know, random.next kind of call yeah. uh, is totally effectful. And, and so, that may be surprising.
2: So, coming back into controlled effects, um, what we're talking about there, and you can correct me or me if I'm wrong, um, but it is just with these effects we want them clearly, demarc- or clearly demarcated. And I think that we even discussed how in some languages you have to explicitly um, mark a function somehow as uh, impure.
0: Yes, that's correct.
2: Is there anything else that uh, we're missing there on controlled effects?
0: Not really. Okay. Do you think Logan?
2: I oh, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I think that's good. And then the last thing Logan talked about was immutability, which um, means inchangeability, or it just it just means in this case that um, you don't have variables in the traditional imperative sense. You have values that um, aren't allowed to change, and so when you, um, for example, pass values to a function, you get a, you don't get the exact same object. You get a copy of the object. Um, I think it's interesting
1: that you're alternating between values and objects. Um,
0: values and variables? In, in,
1: uh, no, va- values and, and objects, okay. specifically. Um, so so objects in the object-oriented sense very much have like these like methods attached to them, and you can do things like they, they have things that they do specifically, mm-hmm. and I think values is a very like... I mean, we've all heard of it before, but it's used a lot in functional land. And that's what they generally mean for their data.
2: So values is a little bit clearer, especially in the functional programming world, and probably more so in, the, in the OO world too. So I should yeah. probably be more careful there.
0: And values has a, actually a very specific meaning in functional world. It means an immutable value specifically. So when we talk about values, they are all uh, this immutable kind of thing. And so you can think of it like if you talk about a value type for example Mm -hmm. um, that value type is there because you get like a copy like your own version of it and any changes you make to it don't affect anyone else's right
2: as compared to a referential type
0: right which is clearly like shared like you're both pointing to the same spot in memory yep now it it turns out that um, the value types, I'm like air quoting here, value types in most languages are actually implemented as reference types. <laughs> so th- it's a little uh, disingenuous for me to say, like the intuition is a little off for me to say it's just like a value type in C-sharp. But the the semantics are the same as a value type in C-sharp, where if I give this to you, you cannot affect my version of it and I cannot affect your version of it. That- that's the important part of the value bit. And whether it's copied, you know, passed on the stack as... Uh, you know, as a copy or it's a shared reference to something that simply can't change, that's kind of gets into implementation detail territory, right? You don't really care about that.
2: Yeah, as a programmer, you're, you're right. Often it's not important to you. Right.
0: But the the key is that um, we work with values and we know that if you hand me something, it's mine and any uh, sort of derived, you know, subsequent, you know, value that I produce, um, you know, take, take that and add it to something or, uh, you know, add an element to it or remove an element or change something produces a new conceptual value, whether it's a new object, like that's a whole copy or some sort of structural sharing thing, like we talked about last week. Again, semantically, it's a whole new uh, version with the one thing changed.
2: Yep. All
0: right. So we didn't get a lot of uh, obviously, we didn't have a contact email last time that we could give out to people. But you did have some sort of overall questions, I believe. And
2: yeah, I think the first one that's going to make sense to go right into is about immutability. OK. Um, and that is so I understand conceptually the concept of mutability, but I don't understand how you're going to do very much without variables. So normally when I'm writing in object-oriented languages, I will have a function. And if it's a complex function, I'm going to have some variables. And through the, pro- through the process of doing things in the functions, those variables values will change. And then I'll return um, something. And uh, as a simple example, if I were, for ex- if I were going to try and uh, find the lowest common factor of three numbers, right? I would do some various math. I'd have a variable and kind of uh, loop through and maybe have that value change to try and find the lowest number.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a running total, like as you go.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so, without variables, it, it's not that it's impossible. It seems needlessly complex. And so, I'm not sure why you would do it that way and how functional programming handles, uh, or or how immutability is going to work in that kind of st- situation.
0: Gotcha. Um, I want Logan to answer this, but I actually have a, a distinction to make. There's immutability in the sense of, like, your array has three elements in it, and will always have three elements, and if you want to have an array with four elements, that's a new array, and it doesn't sort of uh, blow away, you know, clobber the array with three elements. There's mm-hmm. that immutability aspect, and there's also the concept of a variable as a like in traditional imperative languages, a variable is a pointer to a place in memory. Like in C, clearly it's literally a pointer to a place in memory. Uh, mm-hmm. In like you know, C sharp Java, JavaScript, or whatever, uh, that's a little bit more abstracted, but really you're talking about a point in memory. We don't, you know, malloc the, the memory anymore, but we do new up an object, which is doing the malloc, and therefore uh, you know our reference is is pointing to that spot. Uh, so when when I reassign a variable, for example, right, um, I say x is new foo, and then later x equals, you know, the result of this function, which is a foo or something like that. I'm really just changing the pointer of where it points to. And that seems like a, a natural thing to do, like in imperative languages. In functional land, we're talking about variables in the mathematical sense. So what we're we're actually, we don't assign things to variables, we bind a value to a name. So we're just saying, we're just associating this value and this name, and we're saying they're interchangeable. When I say x equals 5, x and 5 are now the same thing. I can put 5 anywhere I see x, I can put x anywhere I see 5, I can just move between those two, and it doesn't change the meaning of the program at all, where clearly that would not be true in in an imperative language, right? Because that x can be different things at different times. Yeah,
2: the value of x will
0: change. Or at least it can change. It's not like guaranteed it'll change. So in in a functional world, we don't ever reassign, uh, we never rebind a variable to a new value, uh, which generally speaking, you don't, um, it's sort of in the, the the pure end of the spectrum. (laughs) Variables are, uh, constants, right? Uh, well, variables are (laughs) constant computations because the variable right. could be the result of a a computation that's deferred that hasn't been run yet you know so i guess in that sense it's a constant do, do they even call them variables um yes they are variables but they're variables in the math sense okay. right we're Got saying in you know for this time x is five but next time x could be seven but x in in this scope that's more like a parameter yes, right? yeah exactly or or usually they're not called parameters they're called arguments um and you okay. apply the arguments to the function which always sounded sound really backwards to me that um or sorry you apply the function to the arguments is what <laughs> this is what uh, the more mathy side would say i always think that's kind of backwards yeah um,
1: i i always think that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it though because you know we usually think of things in terms of like i'm going to call this thing and then it's going to return which thing. is very like
0: jump there and then do a thing and then jump back
1: and, and really it's like i'm going to apply this transformation to this data right and that will yield some other right data. it's like
0: here's a box and if i put some things in the top a, a different thing comes out except it's a magic box. I don't lose the things I put in. I still have them. (laughs) It's more like I place them on top of the box and magically a new thing comes out the bottom, (laughs) sort of a, sort of a deal. And the combination of those, those values and that function produces a unique value, right? So it's kind of like the inputs and the function together are the same thing as the output and, and they could be swapped. Like if you have a function sum with the arguments one and two, you could swap that for 3 and any place you have 3 in your program you could swap that for some 1 2 and it's you have not changed the meaning of your program at all like runtime wise yes of course you could argue that one of those is way more efficient than the other and that a good c- compiler w- could turn some one two into 3 at compile time or something you know like that but in terms of like understanding what the program does you haven't changed the program at all by swapping 3 for some 1 2 and and that's only possible because you have pure functions and immutable values. Does that kind of jive? Like why those are necessary?
2: Um. So yes, yes, and it, and it feels like we're kind of running through, um, what immutable means and why we don't why the why this isn't happening. But I don't know that I have the question answered. Oh, no, absolutely. How do we how do we basically? So okay, I understand. You put the two things on top of the box. One thing comes out the bottom, and the two things stay there. But. It still feels hard to do all your work. In right. The box. So, Logan,
0: do you want to go into the how do you not feel the need to rebind right. a variable to a different value? So, so we're
1: talking about um, doing a least common denominator type type thing. As a simple example, sure. Right. Um. I, yeah. And I'm. And I think we're all visualizing kind of the same imperative thing, where you've got some like common variable that you're going to go through this loop, and every iteration in this loop, you're going to change the value of the variable. Right.
2: Yeah, I don't and know that that's the most recent way, but that's that's what I was imagining starting with. That, that so. is a way that we would probably begin. Yeah,
1: um, and a way that I would probably begin to work around that in a functional sense is use recursive functions, which, in in functional languages, are not a bad thing, like they are considered a dangerous thing in imperative languages because you get stack overflows and that kind of stuff. Um. In functional languages, usually they have something called tail call optimization, which means if the very last or outermost thing that you do is call yourself, then it'll translate that internally to basically a, a while loop.
0: So, to um, to get straight, you know, a little bit more to Aaron's point, because what Aaron, Logan's saying is totally right here. By recursively calling yourself, you the kind of like current value that you're working with that's in scope within the function mm-hmm. keeps getting rebound on each invocation of the recursive call to a new value. So kind of like each time that you would loop through your for loop, you're calling yourself instead. You're recursively calling the same function. And so you have a current mm-hmm. or whatever, right? And, and a, uh, a next or whatever you're kind of like iterating through or however you're doing this race common denominator, uh, evaluation. As you go through that, those values are changing, So the current and the largest or whatever um, have different values each time you recursively invoke yourself.
2: I I think I follow. So basically, the least common denominator function would be, I mean, in this example, would be calling itself over and over again with new numbers. Yes. Until
1: Here's a new iteration of this loop, and here's the new values that you get as you go inside So
0: places where you would have rebound current and largest or something like that, you instead Mm -hmm. uh, enter a new call of the function... And the two parameters are bound to new values that that were given to, you know you know from iteration one to iteration two. iteration two has the result of iteration one's calculation as its parameters and of course, there has to be a terminal case where you say, okay we're, we're at the end of this, we're done. return back." and usually that um, just returns all the way back up the stack.
1: I wonder if um if functional languages can optimize a little bit under the hood and say, "Hey, I already came across this value once." And since this is a pure function, I'm now in a
0: loop. I don't want to be in an infinite loop. Oh. um, So like the halting problem kind of thing? Um, I don't know of any that do that in practice. Like do the static analysis or certainly, because that would have to be like either a runtime check or some really good static analysis. Yeah, it would have to be
2: a runtime check. I would imagine. So that basically does answer my question, but I don't. I don't. uh, I think I'll have to learn more to understand how you're going to do that with even more complex. It's hard to see
0: like through talking. (laughs) It's it's one of those like you see an example of it written out. So probably something we could do is have some uh, links in the show notes to examples of things like that. You know, even if it's just a gist or something. It writes out like a small example of what a traditional imperative like looping structure would look like as a recursive formulation of it, like in JavaScript or something, or C chart.
2: And I don't think necessarily that they're all going to be recursive. I think we'll have different solutions. So we'll we'll have time to think of better um, problems than just the common denominator. So that Um, sounds great.
0: I would actually be, uh, I think you'd be surprised Uh, recursion is used very extensively. Like that is the pretty much the exclusive way to iterate. In a functional world, is through recursion. So it's it's used a lot where it's used very rarely in a um, outside of like tree traversal in an imperative kind of context.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I think that the best uh, one to follow after that is actually. Uh, so what I've written down here is it seems the concepts of functional programming are generally not intuitive. Uh, so especially to those that are programmed with imperative languages in the past, and it feels like this is a big hurdle for people that. Um, are advocating functional programming, or even for people that want to start functional programming, do you think this is something that's uh, functional programming either a perception or a reality that it needs to overcome in order to become more mainstream or to become more used? OK. I don't, I don't think that's particularly
1: harder for new people. I think it's harder for veterans.
2: Mm, it's, uh, you, yeah. you feel that it's, it's hard to step in and um, start with functional programming when you have all this imperative experience. Right. Because that's what you related to
1: and use all of your vocabulary and all of your thinking that comes with a very imperative mindset. And so everything is like upside down when you jump into functional land. And it really does feel like you're like relearning how to program all over again.
0: Yeah, I would relate it to like, if you don't know anything then everything is equally as hard, <laughs> right? Everything is difficult because you're a newbie programmer. If you're You know if you even have a year or two years of imperative experience maybe some schooling maybe just you know stuff you you messed around with you now have like a pretty rich pool of idioms and patterns that you've learned on how to solve problems when a problem comes up in funk in a and you want to solve it in a functional way you have to basically like your brain jumps to the way you would do it in an imperative way. And then you have to go, wait, stop, don't <laughs> no, do it that way. Uh, that's not gonna work, that's the wrong thing to do here. And then you kinda have to like work your way backwards to neutral territory to where you can start to think about it in a different way. And I think that that feels like a huge amount of friction and and it makes functional feel really hard. But to me, it's like um, relating to people who learn uh, foreign languages, right? Um, if you're, you know, it's very well known that kids uh, can pick up multiple languages when they're young relatively easily compared to trying to pick up a language as an adult. And I think that's often attributed to you then, uh, if you learn a second language as an adult, you always sort of um, think in your primary language and then translate into the second language until you have like a lot of experience in that second language. And then you can almost like think natively in that second language. Yeah, which,
2: yeah, basically all your experience in your primary language and all your years of thinking in that one way, make it very difficult right. to um switch your core thinking and you feel like so you both feel like uh with your experience so far that it's not the functional programming isn't intuitive it's that with years of experience doing something different this is a whole new ball game kind of thing and so Coming in with the imperative mindset is a bit of a yeah, disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I, I, I personally uh, had this experience where I'm uh, I'm learning Haskell and I'm going through uh, some coding challenges on like uh, Code Wars, uh, the Code Wars site. And I'm sitting there and this is like a, they, they rank them like one through eight. Um, and I'm on like a two or something, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a three, uh, you know, pr- should be pretty easy, right? Like I've been programming for over a decade and all this stuff. And, you know, it should be easy peasy. Uh, And I'm sitting there and I go, wow, if this was C sharp or JavaScript, uh, five minutes flat, that's like booting up Xamarin. (laughs) Like, and I'd still have this thing banged out in five minutes. And I had been working on it for like 30 minutes in Haskell. And I was just like despairing. Like, Mm -hmm. I felt like a complete failure. I'm like, I am not an idiot. I am not stupid. Why is this so hard? And I think there is just a tremendous amount, not like in the technical sense, but in the psychological sense of we take a lot of, we have a lot of investment in being good at what we do and we take pride in that. And that's what makes us craftsmen and good at at, at our job, right? And and valuable. And so to be so like brought low <laughs> because there, there's, here's this new thing and I've learned lots of new languages, right? Like I went through. You know c and c++ into python and java and then into ruby and then back into c sharp and javascript like i've been it's like this is not the first new language i've i've learned but it it was the first new language that wasn't kind of like a cousin of a language i already knew right this was the first like truly new language i had learned in the sense of a paradigm
2: yeah it was like you were learning latin-based languages and all of a sudden you switched yeah exactly i went from spanish to french
0: to uh to italian and then I went to Mandarin <laughs> or something and was like, what the hell is kanji? Why are there thousands of these things I have to memorize? This is so terrible. Uh, right. So, yeah, it's, right. it's very much like that. And I think that is not to be underestimated. So I'm not in any way saying functional programming is easy to learn as a working imperative programmer. I'm not claiming that at all. But I don't think that is because functional programming is inherently complex. I actually believe that functional programming is inherently less complex because I believe it's made out of simpler things, and we'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. Uh, but I do think that if you are a working developer and you've been doing imperative languages, which is 99.9% of developers out there, it, it is a quite a a jump. And I don't mean to, like, scare people off, but I don't want to be... Um, I don't want to lie to anyone. It, it's a big jump. I think it's totally worth it. Uh, but don't be put off by saying, you know, I feel so stupid because this isn't just clicking. Like I I remember I was a Java developer and I went and read a Ruby book over the weekend and then came back the next, you know, week, uh, you know, after the weekend and started writing some of my automation scripts in Ruby. Like it was no big deal. I did not do that with Haskell. It was like months with Haskell before I was doing anything even vaguely, you know, interesting with it.
1: I've had the benefit of being able to do a lot of JavaScript at my workplace. And call a lot of the shots in the technology stack and everything. So I was able to bring in, or you know, Ramda, which helps functional programming in JavaScript more than it already has over most other languages. And I don't know. It, it feels like that's been a really safe place to learn actual functional concepts, but not completely dive off the deep ends. Like there's still some stuff I know that I have to learn for it uh especially when you get into like the more type safe languages but it's not it doesn't feel insurmountable anymore like it's very much i i don't know um like it's it's more baby steps whereas like if you had to jump into haskell or lisp tomorrow it would be pretty rough right because it's like you you want to make an actual working application and you've got to be able to understand these functional concepts from top to bottom and how you'd actually solve problems with that
2: um, so I think uh, that does pretty much answer my question, um, and basically it is—it it is a hurdle. <laughs> it's something that it is going to need to overcome for imperative programmers, and for new programmers, it may be easier to step into uh, step into this. Um, yeah, and I want to echo mindset. what
0: Logan's saying that uh, if you're coming into functional programming, if you're functionally curious, I do not suggest that you jump straight into Haskell. I think that is actually uh, probably a very frustrating way to go. And a lot of people who I think have a very negative interaction with uh, functional programming uh, have done something like that. They've like bounced off Haskell a couple times. The JavaScript route today is I think a very very good on ramp. It's very gentle. You can kind of add things in as you go, such as if you're using underscore or lodash, just switch to Ramda. Like do that one change, and it will start to influence how you think about. Uh, you know you'll have tools. Uh, we haven't really covered this, so I don't want to talk about it too much. But you'll have you know partial application, and you'll have um, sort of higher-order functions, um, which I don't think we've talked about at all, so uh, just know that there are tools <laughs> that are available to you that you will start to uh, utilize because they're right there in front of you, right? It's so easy. You almost need a reason not to use them once you become aware that they exist. Um, and those that that path through, like, a Ramda is very gentle, um, or at least it's certainly gentle compared to, like, jumping straight into Haskell. G- gentler. Uh, Although, gentler. I mean... Right. I, I know right. a lot of JavaScript developers who use the map that's built into uh, Array or C-sharp developers who use Link. And I I hear, you know, complaining, like, this is weird and, and strange and unlike the stuff that I'm used to, I, I'll just use a for loop. Um, but once they kind of get used to it, I mean, it's not like it takes them six months to get used to map, right, or select in uh, in, in Link. It's like a couple right. weeks <laughs> at max. I mean, they still got a ways to go before they're like composing awesome sure. things. Sure, but, but once they're using but. a little bit of that, they are down this path where they may want the same sort of thing in, in other contexts. Oh, but now I want to do this other thing It's not quite map. Oh, hey, there's this filter thing. That's exactly what I want. Cool. I wonder what other things there are. And then once you're to that point, you've kind of um, started to, it may not be obvious, but you started to move your mindset towards uh, sort of a functional approach to things without even realizing you're doing it. So I think the JavaScript route is very, very good. Like I think that is one of the gentlest, most uh, efficient ways in functional programming these days.
2: I don't mean to be dead horse with this question, but one last thing that's worth noting is that stepping into a whole new mindset like this, especially when it is valuable, but even when it's not, it really does allow you to, it's, it's, a, it's a way to really stop from stagnating, like putting yourself in a whole new, and this is, this is from someone that hasn't learned functional programming, so take my words with a grain of salt, but when you do something like this that really changes your mindset and challenges you to think a different way, you're going to get a lot out of it. You're going to be a better programmer, even if you don't switch to functional, there's something to be said for learning a whole new mindset as opposed to a, a cousin language like we've discussed before
0: right like a small variation on something you already do
2: exactly it's uh this this is time that while it may be frustrating you're going to get something out of of opening yourself up to something like this i believe
0: all right do we have any more questions or follow up on last week or last episode
2: um i think that will cover all the questions from last about, about last week's episode that i had
0: Okay, Um, so the first thing I'd like to lead off with this uh, episode is sort of um, kind of a a follow on here is the point of all this, we didn't really state this last time, we talked about kind of what functional programming is, you know, pure functions and some controlled effects, and that leads us to immutability, it's all for the purpose of this concept of simplicity. And I think this um, simplicity, the, the simplicity I'm using here has a very specific meaning. It comes from a talk by Rich Hickey called simple made easy and he makes this distinction between uh simple and easy which are often used as synonyms so he puts these on two uh two sort of spectrums so we have simple and complex that's one spectrum and we have easy and hard on the other spectrum and uh it's absolutely a fantastic talk and I recommend it to everyone and I think you should go watch it I'll give you the incredibly oversimplified version here <laughs> simple is objective and relates to the degree to which a concept or thing is coupled to other things so simple means isolated independent complex means interwoven knit you know so if you think of strands of uh yarn hanging down from a like tied to a board and hanging straight down they're all independent they can all kind of be grabbed and manipulated independently and then you have those same strands hanging down from the board, but now woven together. They've gone through a loom. The the knitted together one is the complex, and the uh, straight down one is the simple. So, Logan, do you want to go over then the easy versus hard kind of uh, spectrum, or
1: I mean, easy versus hard? Is I I, I don't know. To, to me, I almost see like easy is on almost seems like the opposite end of simple. Um. Because easy takes away all of your options. How so? It's like the I'm going to push one single button and it does everything I want it to do. Okay, that's easy. Do like my just job just press the
0: one button and then if you don't want the button, it's like well, too bad.
1: Right, and, and hard is like I got to push twelve buttons. Okay,
0: um, or something,
1: and they all have to be in like a proper sequence. Yeah,
0: um, I guess there's also a uh, like there's a distinction that um, simple and complex is objective. Like you can say that thing's either, you know, that's either woven together or it's not like that's pretty objective, where easy and hard is like subjective. It's easy for you uh, might be really hard for me.
1: Uh, You and I, Dave, we were we dove pretty deep into Ruby for a while. And I feel like a big thing about that culture was make it easy.
0: Yes. Gem install, whatever.
1: And I remember trying everything I could to make things easy, but ultimately it seemed
0: to just not and really pan out. Do you attribute that to the fact that it was and to make it easy? Uh, things were sort of like reduced in, into a place where, yes, it was very quick to get started. It was easy. There's just one button, but really quickly you wanted two buttons or five.
1: Right. The The, the thing about easy is that easy is typically not composable. Right. And, and composable Which uh, composable things by nature have to be simple.
0: Okay, can you um, define composable for us here? A
1: composable meaning that you can somehow chain or structure things together um, to to build a larger thing.
0: Okay, and the ultimate uh, sort of example use case of this that I like to throw out is Legos. Lego pieces are composable and and the key is like you can hook two of them together and that doesn't destroy their ability to then continue to be connected to other Lego pieces. Like theoretically you can keep stacking Lego pieces on top of each other or hooking onto them in different ways to infinity, right? That never ends. It's not like, I mean, that's not entirely true because of course you have like the special pieces that are like rounded or something that you can't just keep building off of. But if we talk about just the square kind of regular bricks, which to be honest are pretty boring, (laughs) like they don't do a lot, but we want our programs to be, I think, fairly boring in the sense of they're not surprising. (laughs) Uh, We can just keep stacking those on forever.
2: Right. And maybe i misunderstood something here, but I would call the Lego bricks simple and easy.
0: So if you want to build, um, you want to build a spaceship, yeah, you want to build a car with build a, build a it. Car Would you rather build it, it? out yeah. of little Lego bricks or a big fashioned plastic piece? Like a nice curved like a cockpit or, you know, wheels, right? You could build wheels out of like Lego bricks or you could have the fashioned rubber wheels that are in Lego cars. Those parts themselves are a dead end. They're not composable. You can't like stick a wheel on the end of the axle and then stick something else on the wheel, right? Like it just kind of ends there. But man, that's convenient, right? Mm-hmm. So I I think um in the sure, sense sure, sure. of Legos, they are uh, building something, building an action figure out of Legos while composable, and you have the ability to tear that down and rebuild it or continue to add onto it. It's simple, but it is not easy. It's much easier to build an action figure by taking, you know, some prefab arms and, and just plopping them into a socket and and the legs and the head. Like, that's way easier.
2: Um, and so backing up, we can say the Legos themselves, though, are easy, but they're not necessarily – weren't the easiest thing for the Lego manufacturer to make, Right. Is, is that another? I mean, because it's hard. It's hard for me to say it, that simple and easy can't both coexist. I think you can have something that do something the easy way and have it still be simple. But maybe I, I, I mean, they may not be exactly on opposite ends of a spectrum, but it does feel
0: like they have opposing goals. Well, I feel they're independent spectrums, and sometimes you have something that is both simple and easy. But I think often you have something that is complex and easy. I think, like Logan's saying, that is the a very natural place to end up because by making it easy. You have mm-hmm. combined it with a bunch of other things, right? You've built baked in assumptions. You've put in pre uh, you've sort of uh, pre set up things and you've connected to, to other parts. And that makes it easy to get started with. But it makes it complex because by taking, uh, you know, this part, this prefab Lego piece, you now shut yourself out of a lot of options and you force yourself to use it in a certain way, whether that's the eventually what you want or not.
2: Right. Easy in that sense, being we've made this easy, but at the same time, behind the scenes, there's a lot of complexity that you don't have. Access right. To. And so
0: I think, well, I think the metaphor breaks down for programming when we talk about the manufacturing of the blocks. I think of the blocks as your sort of base thing to build things from. And I want to build things. Those are your, those are your extra, maybe the semantics of your language or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. The, you know, the material you Constructs. have to build from. And so.
1: So has everybody here used a promise so far? I have. Yep. Maybe, maybe Aaron hasn't. I have not. I've heard you talk about them, and I didn't mean to get off track here with the simple words easy, but go ahead. Uh, Well, uh, promises are like a great example of that. So, like promises don't exactly do terribly much more than a callback does, right? I mean, that's essentially what they are. They're they're a they're uniform callback interface. But but one thing that's really neat about promises is that you can compose them, and you can't do that with callbacks, not not easily. Because you can you can go and say, well, mm-hmm. I'm going to call this function, and that gives me back a promise, and I can hook off of that promise and say, when that gets done, I'll then evaluate this thing or update my view or whatever. And that promise can then go and call other promises, that call other promises, that you know eventually they all resolve down, and your end application gets to do something with that. But you don't actually know, as the consumer, like what your what's being promised exactly. You just know when it gets done. Hmm. Okay. Whereas with callbacks you kind of have to like you have to have a little bit more intimate information or something.
0: Are you making the argument that promises are simple or easy or both?
1: I, I actually think promises are are harder to use than callbacks. But they're but they're simpler.
0: Interesting. I would uh I think make the opposite claim. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the callbacks are simpler. Because the callback well cuz the callback just takes a function right and that's it right whereas with like the promises like you get an mm-hmm. object back now or value and that has like a then and it has a catch and and then you can hook onto those but that also uh, calling then or catch or whatever also returns a promise and you can hook off of that too
0: Sure, but if it returns a function i can just then pass that to another function or call another function like what what i'm saying is uh to me callbacks are simpler but harder I think promises... That's what I was... Isn't that what you said? You said promises were simpler. I think promises are more complex but easier. Now, I don't think they're way more complex. And I think there is a... This is a spectrum. Both of these are spectrums. And you make cost-benefit trade-offs all the time, uh, you know, as engineers. But to me, I mean, we could disagree about this, certainly. I, I think I view promises as more complex because they bake in more assumptions, but that makes them easier to use. I think... The thing about
1: uh, promises is they've got a uniform interface. So once you've learned how to consume one promise, right. you now know how to consume all promises, whereas but callbacks, callbacks are just that's functions. never true. Well, all callbacks sure. are different. Well, but how do you actually like, pass them in? Like, where's the hook uh, for this? I mean, that
0: kind of stuff. So that's what you're that arguing for there is it, because it is uniform. To me, that's an easy because it's uniform. Like, what, what what parameters does this one take? What does it need to return? Yeah, well, okay. we things. could probably should shelve that uh, for right now. <laughs> so clearly, the, yeah. it's a it's a debatable <laughs> thing. But the big picture here is that easy is a what is easy for you. It's subjective. It relates to your experience and how quickly is it. Can you kind of make something happen with it? Uh, where simple is a more objective measurement of is this thing tied into or intrinsically connected to other things? Like, can you take? it by itself and just grab it and use it? Or do you kind of when you grab it like, oh, there's like a rope around this, and so when I pull this, it like drags all this other stuff in there. Um I think in his talk he uh he joked about gem install hairball. Like it's really, really easy to say gem install or in today that would be npm install hairball. It's super easy to go npm install whatever, right? And you get just like crazy huge amounts of functionality. But who knows what you're getting with that, right? It's certainly not simple. You're getting left pad. Well, that one actually was pretty pretty simple, but uh, was. it was.
1: It was. And it reached 2.0, which blows my mind.
0: Even um, little NPM packages grow up someday.
2: So I think that, uh, you know, for me, and I, ha- I have a little experience with this again, but I think that it's pretty clear what you're talking about, you know, with the with the real short summary of simple and easy. Okay,
0: so this brings us to a rule of thumb that uh that logan and i like to refer to do you want to talk about that logan the the magic number seven
1: uh i think uh hickey goes over that in his that same talk oh, does he if i'm not mistaken okay. yeah he goes over it and like i remember seeing it in one of his talks
0: i i'd heard about that independently of him but why don't you talk about what this number seven so it's actually it's not actually seven it's seven
1: plus or minus two and that's kind of like the magic number of things that you can keep in your head at any given moment and it can be a really great metric for looking at something and determining whether or not you need to like break it down more or compose it up into something else or whatever um a things to think of that would be occupying space in your head because we all have lives right is like stuff going on at home maybe you've got like taxes coming up and you gotta remember that and maybe there's an interesting conversation going on in your office. And that's something that you have to like block out. And each one of those like eats a slot and you've only at best you have nine of these, but probably you actually have five.
0: So what you're saying here is that um, if you have a, let's say that we're just right in the middle of the road, we're seven and there's a couple things going in our lives. We've got like, we're down to five and you've got uh, you know, the function you're dealing with and the function that calls it and kind of like, a little bit of state that's that you're tracking, like what got passed in. What what are we trying to go for here? That's like one of the things. Like really quickly, you get to five, especially when you have to think about things outside the function. Right, you have to worry. You have to remember. Oh, okay. So we're gonna um, we're gonna push this thing onto this array. Um, you know, but but, you know, is it okay for me to do that? Do I have a copy? Do I not have a copy? Like in a traditional imperative world, there's a, a lot of th- because you have so much power at every point, right? You have unbound IO, you can do embed an operating system in your function if you want to. Yeah, yeah.
1: you guys have seen the comic that, that like embodies that perfectly, right?
0: But which one are you talking about?
1: It's like, it's like showing like a programmer sitting at their computer and like, they see like some error, and they start thinking about their, their application. And they're thinking about like little blocks of code and how these like things interact with each other, and then like it zooms out to, you know, like these complex flowcharts and and network diagrams and and that kind of stuff, and and then someone shows up and says, "Hey, did you get my email?" And all of it like crashes down, and it's
0: all gone. Oh yes, I have. Seen. I think that's the next KCD. I don't think it is. Oh, okay. Well, if we can find that, we'll toss that in the show notes. But yeah, so it's clearly there's yeah. this, I think every programmer's experienced this, like, I've got everything loaded in my head. Don't talk to me. Don't do not do anything. I don't want to lose this. Right. And I don't think we give a lot of, um, I don't think we admit, or, it's, or it's, it feels very vulnerable to admit that we really can't keep that many things in our head. And so it kind of behooves us to optimize for... Not having to think about a bunch of things, being able to really only to really understand what's going on and only need three or four slots you know in, in our brain uh, you know in terms of focus. And so by having pure functions and no side effects and immutability, it just kind of a whole bunch of things that you might potentially have to worry about just evaporates right? Is this thing gonna change? No do I have to worry about messing someone else up? no is there going to be like a side effect in here no is there gonna be side effect somewhere else that will mess me up no like none of those things can happen right and so that might feel really uh restrictive but it's restrictive for our own benefit and this isn't to say that we're stupid it's to say that we recognize our own limitations and we want to be more efficient and we want to be more efficient by uh sort of uh working with our you know biological limitations not sort of ignoring that they exist and hoping for the best but
1: and you know your code best, right? But, but almost all of us have to work in teams, or we face the reality that we'll have to come back and see some code that we've written earlier, right? And
2: that's what I was going to say is, oh, I'm sorry, we've not done that. No, no, go code. ahead. I was going to say the exact same thing. I think anyone that's looked at other people's code, I mean, you can look at code and go, holy cow, what happened here? And see levels of complexity that you'll never understand. And there's times where you look at code, you can say, oh, they, this was done fairly simply, and unfortunately i think most of us will say we see the, the former more often but um looking at your own code is probably the worst way i think to to make this point it's much easier to look at other code and see oh okay this is yeah. this is elegant is a is a word people will use sometimes um and really could use the word simple sometimes people will use elegant for, to mean something else but sometimes it's just oh this is very, very clear looking at this, what this does. And that's what we're talking about. Or that's what you're talking about, I think, when you say simplicity.
0: Yeah, I think often when people say elegant, what they are striving for, the, the sort of essence of what they're trying to get across is I understand this straightforwardly and I can load it all in my head and reason about it.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think that often when we look at code examples online, you can see re- really very simple examples of um, complex um, topics. People that have done well. At simplifying something that could be written in a very poor way, and 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 is not
0: right. And it was often a lot more work to get the complex kind of concept distilled down into simple parts. Like simplicity is not, uh, you know, that's usually it's more work, not less work. But it has a huge payoff.
2: Yeah, I think I think by default we we don't tend to think the very very first time of the best way to do things, and that's again you're, you know people's pride getting in the way. But the, if if you just sit down and just start writing when you have a problem you're not going to get that. You're Well, you're rarely going to get the most simple solution as opposed to writing and thinking it through or thinking it through and and designing your um, application after uh, designing with simplicity in mind.
0: Right. However, if you have sort of the ground rules of I'm going to write with pure functions and I'm not going to do side effects except for in certain places and I'm not going to mutate stuff, it puts you like right out of the gate uh, more in the realm of simple like it, yeah, it, it pushes it you limits towards you. That.
2: yeah i understand so yeah
0: we've talked a bit about um sort of fp in the whole in the large and uh clearly we can do functional programming the the pure functions and controlled effects and immutability we can do that in javascript or c sharp or python or ruby or or whatever uh, but there are some uh things that having a language that embodies this is very beneficial for so i'd like to just briefly touch on Maybe like the why of, okay, so if we could do this JavaScript, why would we ever bother with Haskell? Like, why does Haskell exist? What's the point of it? Or PureScript or Elm or or any of these kinds of languages. So uh, let's talk, I mean, there's a lot of functional languages out there. Uh, Clojure would be an example of a dynamic uh, functional programming language. I'd like to talk about what we can get out of the the static side of things and not just the static side of things like uh, an F-sharp. Or an ML, I'm talking about like a Haskell or PureScript, and these are or an Elm, and these are pure functional languages. And the pure part is important because it basically means it holds you uh, to these rules. <laughs> like these rules are compiler errors. Can you define for a real
2: quick static language?
0: Okay. Um, actually, Logan, do you want to do that? Do you want me to? Uh,
1: yeah. So static language is usually you have types, and those types you can do operations on them, or you- they have operations they can do themselves. Uh, I guess that depends on your language paradigm, but the st- the static languages all make sure that whatever it is that you're going to do with them, they have that capability and it checks that up front. Right? So and that means that you have to go and declare things a little bit ahead or you have to help it out a little bit and say look, I can do these operations, but I only do it
0: with an integer
1: or I need a string here. Not just a variable that could be
0: anything. So in JavaScript, if you write a sum function that takes a and b and returns a plus b, you hope that someone only passes like numbers, numbery things, or strings maybe into that. They don't pass things things that can be (laughs) plussed. Right. Uh, Yep. Perfect. But in a like Haskell, uh, if you don't pass in something that can be plussed, it just simply does not compile. Right. And of course, um that Perfect. exists right now, like JavaScript versus say C sharp or Java. We can see that static versus dynamic. Um right. so that same dichotomy exists in functional versus uh in the functional world, uh there's also dynamic and static. Although
1: my observations with static functional languages is that they're quite a bit different. Like Java and C sharp, they 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 feel like half the time you're like this is this really like worth all of the things I'm jumping through I have to make a factory here and then that needs a factory and I need all these other things,
0: like adapters that kind of thing
1: yeah and it's like why do I really need this and and I realized that like to some extent it's it's so you need to satisfy the compiler you need to make sure that like everything's checked but there does become some ceremony involved with it and I have not picked up that ceremony from like we've done some a little bit of Haskell together. I've done a little bit on my own. Um, I don't remember if we've done script or not. But it's like in all the code examples I've seen too. It's like that stuff just doesn't really seem to exist. Um,
0: yeah, there's a there's sort of a categorical difference in they're both you know C sharp and, and Haskell for example are both static type systems, but they are very different kinds of static type systems. Um, in the sense of uh, both Java and Ruby are imperative languages, imperative object-oriented languages, but you would not say that Java and Ruby are very similar, right? <laughs> right in the, in the the way you go about doing things. So let's let's talk about some of those things that make. Um, I, I think people will probably be familiar with like a Java, E, C Sharp kind of a uh, static type system, maybe C but they probably aren't familiar with like a Haskell, PureScript, Elm type, uh, st- you know, static type system. So. What are some of the things that those languages enforce at like a compiler semantic level that uh, make them uh, kind of push you very much towards this simple end of the spectrum? Or what I would argue is the simple end of the spectrum.
1: Uh, All the functions are
0: expressions. So what does that mean?
1: That means that they evaluate to a value. We're touching on vocabulary I'm not very familiar with here.
0: Okay, so when you say expression, you mean an expression as opposed to a uh, statement?
1: Yeah, like a statement you can evaluate in an order, and that produces some new state of the application. And an expression is just simply saying, like, this just maps that thing.
0: Okay, so an example might be um, in JavaScript, you can have a... uh, like a array, like a string operation. Like there's slice and there's splice, right? And slice, I forget which one's which, but one of them uh, cuts something out of the array. Right. You know, Matches something and like replaces it or makes like, it, it out it of the array. An
1: in-place change. And so it's like you right. could just write a statement. Yeah, I guess that's the difference. Like that's a statement that just says it calls this function, and it doesn't do anything with the result. So it has to have changed something like in its innards.
0: Right. It basically gives you back void or null or whatever the equivalent is in your language.
1: Right. And so you can't
0: compose it into anything else now, right? Right. You couldn't do dot at the end because there's nothing to dot right. on. Versus the other one, splice or slice, whichever one it is, gives you back a new string that is the old string, but you know with this part swapped out for Correct. a different part. So that is an expression because then we could do dot to upper, you know, or some sort of stringy thing, or pass it in as the uh, argument to a function or something like right. that. And so Haskell or purescript, you know these pure functional languages, um they say all functions are expressions, so there's no such thing as a statement e there's there's no all,
1: all the all the pure
0: functions, right? Well, all the functions, even the not pure functions, they all return a value
1: mm, right because like the like in haskell the the uh the side effects stuff always returns like a an i o right
0: it's it, it results in usually like unit which is kind of like the placeholder for a nully kind of value like it doesn't really like here's the value that kind of represents we don't have any interesting information to convey here but it still always returns a value right even if it's doing like console log kind of a operation so and it's it gets more specific than that so all functions it return a value and we could say okay i could do that in c sharp or, or whatever javascript but uh All functions are a single expression in Haskell and PureScript and whatnot. So it's not like you can do A and then do B and then do C and then return A plus B plus C. It's one big expression that the whole function evaluates to and that's returned. And that to me was really awkward at first. I really wanted to do this part and then if this, then that, and then a little bit later. I mean, that's super common in imperative code, right? You go into a function, you do a bunch of stuff, and then eventually you, you return a value. Here, it's just a single expression. And there's there's nice syntax to like basically set up your A equals this, B equals this, C equals this, return A plus B plus C. You actually can express that because that that is kind of one single expression. But you wouldn't do like um, A equals this, B equals this, C equals go get this async thing, and then when it comes back, go do this other async thing, and then when that comes back, like, do a bunch of sort of ordered bits. It's more like, this entire function evaluates to a single result, which which ties in nicely to the, it's a mapping from domain to codomain, right, that, that input to output sets. Right. And that, I think, is very, very significant, even though that might not seem significant, to pushing you towards simple functions. Because when you can only have a single expression, your function is sort of necessarily limited in how complex it gets. Like, you're not going to have a 300 line, I mean, I've seen some Incredibly obnoxiously long functions in, like JavaScript, for example, um, or C Sharp. You're not going to have that, you know, thousand-line function because it can only do. It's all one expression. Does that distinction make sense? I believe so. Yes,
2: it does to me. And it also, in in the examples I've seen online, and uh, one of the questions I've I've held off on is, it, it feels that sometimes the you know, when you look at an example and you say, here's how you do this in, in C Sharp, for example, and here's how this looks in a in, a, in Haskell. It looks like what they're doing is saying, oh, we're just going to take everything and do it on one line. And at, at first glance, sometimes, again, coming from imperative world, that feels um, like you're just overcomplicating things. Like sometimes it is looking at it, it is nice to be able to say A this, B this, C, and then come back and uh, return your value.
0: Gotcha. And it feels like they're breaking things into too many parts and that sort of makes things harder to think about.
2: Not that they're breaking things into too many parts. Instead that we're saying, um, again, because we're, we're often not assigning uh, variables either. We're going through recursive function. You'll have what seems to me to be um, complex. And this doesn't, again, doesn't mean they're not simple, but complex single line statements. that are, you're, You can look at that statement as just doing so many things. Um, and so you get this function that ends up being just a one line function that's a very complex one line. It's doing just as much work as the imperative version would have done. Right. It's doing it's doing, you know, 10, 15, 30 lines of imperative code. I, I do
1: see that a lot too. And I and I do think it does those languages to allow you to go and break things into multiple lines. And then it becomes a little bit easier to digest.
2: When it's all those languages being functional languages. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's specifically the sort of pure okay static functional the Haskell end of the spectrum.
2: And so, yeah, this ties back to the question I asked, What you guys said. Well, usually you, do, you you could deal with that in a recursive way. Um, so that that question um, started the episode with. You do,
0: but also um, something that comes up a lot is uh, a lot of times where you would have, like you have a bunch of lines of imperative code, like 20 lines or something, you might take that and break that into like mm-hmm. five functions that each do part of. Part of that, um, those twenty lines, right? You know, do lines. a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that, mm-hmm. and you could break those out into individual functions, and then assign them all to variables in your sort of main function that's coordinating it all, and then use them all together to produce your result and hand it back. You could do that kind of thing, right? And that's actually kind of like what you do mm-hmm. in like a in a fu- pure functional language, except that you often find that the kind of the custom code that you would have been writing for one of those functions is able to be expressed using the sort of primitives not primitives in the sense of like keywords but the the built-in existing structures that are already in the language that in, in the same way that last episode we kind of talked about um sometimes it feels like a functional language is just take your big function and break it into a tons of little functions and you haven't really gained anything you've just like moved it from like 100 lines here to you know uh, 20 five-line functions spread out.
2: Yeah, we, we used the tree and the branch uh, example last time where we said it was, before it was a tree, and now we took all the branches and took all the branches and put them on the ground.
0: And laid them out. But when you lay them out, you often see patterns and you see duplication and you go, oh, these five things are actually the same thing. I don't need five different functions. I need one that's parameterized a little bit. Sure. So, um, Logan, do you want to talk about like higher order functions? Have we talked about that?
1: Uh, we We touched on it. So higher order functions are
0: basically functions that you hand over to other functions, is that correct? To, to change their behavior. Right. So if some function that's like, I know how to do kind of the big picture thing, but I have no idea about the specifics. You need to supply me with the function that does the specifics.
1: Right. Um, so like map is in itself is not the higher order function, but what you give map is.
0: Um, no, map is the higher order function because it that takes is. another
1: function. Uh, that's not how I heard it first.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's just higher order because it's a function that takes another function as an input. That's kind of the, the way that works. But anyways, your your point is that the map is taking in another function right? Uh, to do its job. And map knows how to do some of it, but it's only when you combine it with a um, what to do with each element in the collection that it is finally like put together.
1: And there's so much you can get away with if you if your language allows for high order functions. If it doesn't, then things are going to be hard.
0: Yeah, I would argue that it is not possible to do a functional style in a language that doesn't have higher order functions.
1: Right. It's like the other features are like, man, it'd be really nice to be able to have the ability to curry or you know, some type checking here or something like that. But it's like without higher order functions, like the
0: show's just stopped. Right. You really can't get very far without higher order functions. And we'll definitely, um, you know, go into higher order functions. I think probably it deserves its own episode. But, okay, so we've got all functions are expressions. That's definitely a a concept that comes up a lot, um, or that's very different, I should say. Um, What are some other things that sort of Haskell, PureScript, Elm pushes you towards that's very different and sort of, you know, results in nice... uh, what we would argue is simplicity um so
1: a a behavior that i've that functional languages made me think about for imperative languages is how they handle a lack of a value
0: okay lack of a value in what context like normally we think of that as a null okay so like i did the thing and maybe I just don't have anything to say about it. And I should just give you back like, null no, or something like right. that, or void, or right. whatever. Like, I
1: don't have anything meaningful to give you, so here's a null. Okay. And null has a lot of problems with it. There are posts about how it's the, the billion-dollar mistake or whatever. Right. Um, <laughs> and one of the things I think is really interesting, though, is like sometimes you get into arguments with people about what it means for a language to be static or dynamic or type-safe or whatever. And one of my favorite things to do is show them how the, the Java's and the C Sharp's aren't quite as type safe as they had thought. Okay. And it's like, OK, let's take this class, and we're going to create it. Uh, maybe, maybe we have a factory over here that made it. And now we've got it locally, and now we're going like, to call these methods on it that we know are there, and the compiler checks that. And everything's just beautiful, and it will always work. Right? It won't
0: compile if you try to call something that's not there. Right. Right,
1: and that's true. But and now let's go and have my factory return null. Well, it still compiles, right? I mean, does do those yeah. methods exist on null? No, they don't. And
0: right, you're so get it's re- kind of a lie,
1: right? And in the Haskell's and the pure scripts and such, they they don't they don't call it null. They do have a concept of null, but it is its own type.
0: Well, yeah, they have a concept of no value called units. Right, so
1: it can't be like I have a reference value to a class that I declared somewhere else or it could always just be null. Right, that's kind of the implicit thing whenever you're doing most OO type stuff.
2: It sort of reminds me of the uh, debate, I think it was VB6 where this was going on, and objects had something called the tag property which was just every control, or not objects, I'm sorry, controls had something called a tag property. And what the tag was was you could put whatever you wanted in there um, and every control had it. It just let you attach stuff on, and it was a way, sort of, for programmers to be lazy. And uh, Microsoft should to take it off. There was a big fight about it. But null kind of sounds a little bit like that same thing. Whereas null is just this general, well, you know, we didn't want. We don't have a value return, so we're just going to have it be null. Right. It's a special exception that you can use. That it doesn't really apply when you're working with an object. It's uh, null does, is not. Whatever object type or you know you want to return. It's its own. Yeah, thing. you can't do anything with it.
1: The only thing that you can do is check to see if it's there. Right. Yeah.
0: And and it's sort of like every it means that every place where you have an assertion about a type. So you have a function, and your function takes uh, a foo and returns a bar, what it really means is it takes a foo or a null and returns a bar or a null. Right. And and of course, you know, you have like primitives that can't be null unless they're explicitly marked as nullable um which is kind of its own debate but the the idea of like null is everywhere in in most languages and it's just kind of considered like a normal thing like well what how else would you handle not having a value right Right. and um in a language where all functions are expressions and they always return a value null starts to not make as much sense And and especially because it's it's a lie in terms of the type system um, you know, I can't guarantee that if I write a function that goes from foo to bar, that and I'm passing it a foo. You know, it looks like I'm passing it a foo. That uh, it won't blow up at runtime. Like we've all had null pointer exceptions, or you know, uh, undefined is not a function, or or things like that. Um, and those, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah. I would sometimes, sometimes it feels like I do more of work hunting those down than pretty much anything in my code. Yeah, you know, just like
2: it is absolutely my most common error. Yeah, and it's like without a doubt.
0: And then like then you start checking and like well at the beginning of all these different functions you have if the thing that I got that should be a foo is actually null, (laughs) do this other thing. Like how often do we um you know validate your your parameters actually are there? Like maybe in the like uh, code that it is expected to fail, but often you certainly don't do that on every function, and you don't do that in the guts of your your application. And then when it's running, you know, it just blows up at runtime uh, because somehow a null got in there and then you got to walk back and figure out, well, where the hell does this null come from? Right. And that is a huge pain. And I think it is a very, uh, <laughs> under Like, I don't think many people admit that that is a kind of a really big problem. I think in, in most type systems, uh, that null is there, that null is like a kind of a big problem.
1: Right. Well, it bypasses all your checks, right?
0: Yeah, and, and the certainty you have, OK, the thing compiled, great. You know, I passed in a foo and it's going to work. Uh, just it's out the window. And there's another problem with null, too. Okay. What does it mean? Right. Null is basically w- zero bits of information.
1: <laughs> Maybe we should, we should throw this one at Aaron. Yeah, OK. So I imagine that you have written code in the last month that has returned null at some point. Absolutely. What does null mean in that function?
2: That's interesting because that doesn't even feel like a question to me. And that may be because I'm so in the imperative mindset. But null is the, okay, this is not um, not this object. So so uh, say you're trying to retrieve a record from the database and the record is not there, you might return, well, that's not the best example, actually.
1: But well, That's a great example. That is a perfect example. So you couldn't find the record. Mm-hmm right so you're now you're going to return null well, you're
2: going to throw an exception is what you should do but okay so let's say you're returning null
1: right but i mean that's kind of what happens right is like you 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 throw back null because you couldn't find it or maybe there's a database error you still return null like like
0: well b- We can make the distinction between expected failure and unexpected failure. So if you go to find something by ID and it's not there, that's probably an exception-y kind of thing. But if you're like, find everyone, Mm -hmm. uh, find the first thing.
2: uh, Give me a list of of records that have this criteria. uh, You'd probably get an empty list back from that.
0: But If you said, find the first thing named Johnson, um, you're not going to get a list back, right? But if you don't find anyone in your database named Johnson, then you probably don't an exception for that, right? Because that's an acceptable thing.
2: Yeah, you just you just send back null.
0: How
1: about go go make me a buffer that has these properties, right? Okay. I mean, that one's got like a whole bunch of things that that can do. I mean, who knows mm-hmm. what a buffer is going to do? Okay. But if you get null back from that, what are the possible meanings that that could have? And clearly, it's not one of success.
0: But right, it could mean it failed. But
1: how did it fail? What, what does that mean for failure? Like, you, you got a null back, and maybe it also throws exceptions too, but you got a null back. Is it immediately apparent that that's like, well, you just didn't get a buffer? Is that because I don't have enough memory? Is that because, like,
0: you already have one from earlier? You know? and Sure, and a lot of these things are covered by exceptions in the error case, um, but sometimes nulls are still returned, like in sort yeah, of... Yeah, I mean,
1: even, even in your database, right? You've still got, like, what happens when first name is null? What does that even mean? Does that mean none was provided, or we're, we're just never going to have one? Yeah.
2: I, think, I think so. I, I, uh, and, and again, I'm, so I'm a fan of nulls in the database, because I think that null is different from an empty string.
1: But how's that different from an empty string in a meaningful way?
2: Um, it's different in a meaningful way because it's unset. So null means this has never been touched. An empty string means this has been touched and it's empty. But that's not true because I can set it. Yeah, you can set it to null, and then that, that, I suppose that's true. It's been touched and it's been set to null.
1: So, so that's what it means for you in that context, right then and there.
0: What do you mean? Right. Like, like you've you've created your own semantics around null, right? And it takes on this meaning because you ascribe to null a certain meaning.
2: No, I mean, I don't think that's actually true. I think that if you have a database with, I think the most common scenario is going to be a a varchar field. And so, if you have an empty string there, that's very different from having a null there. Is, is, would you agree with that? Because it's very possible that you want to store an empty string in a in a varchar field, for whatever reason. Sure.
0: I guess I what I'm saying is, what case do you meaningfully make a distinction between a null mm-hmm. and an empty string? Like, if you just said, if you just said, I have a database, and this database has this property of you can't have nullable fields. Where do you then? Lose out. Like, what things are unrepresentable, unrepresentable in that uh, mm-hmm. in that scenario that has any meaning for you as a programmer in terms of understanding your data or, or working with it?
2: Um, it's, uh, you know, thinking of one off the top of my head. It's probably not worth the time here on on the cast. I can think on it and get back to you guys.
0: Sure, I, I can actually give you an example. Um, you need some constructed piece of data, like you need a user account, but they haven't created a user account and a. Uh, a login is associated with the user account, but you don't have a user account yet, right? And so you need to indicate like, well, you know, they've done the first part, but we're waiting for them to confirm their email and then we'll take them to, into the account registration part. Now you could say, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and create that and stuff in the database and leave all the stuff empty. But then like there's a creation date in there that we had to populate because again, we don't have nulls. And we, it, that's a lie because they actually haven't created it yet. We're going to override it with with the actual creation date when they finally get to that step. So, I actually think it is useful to say I have one or I don't have one. Like, I do think that is a meaningful thing. I just think that null is a very uh, uh, impoverished way to communicate that kind of a thing. Because it's zero bits of information you've reduced, like, your whole thing down to. Right, like, yeah. null is just null. I can't carry useful things along with it.
2: It's like, it just means unset. It's,
1: it's the absence of signal. And the absence of signal cannot be interpreted as additional signal.
0: Well, or right, or an incredibly simple. I mean, an incredibly. Uh, I would use impoverished again. Like you cannot get much meaning out of that without like ascribing unique semantics to no signal in this context. Yeah, and I
2: suppose that's maybe that's maybe that's what I and maybe most people do is we say okay, this is unset, or you know, you use it as functionally unset or set. And set means it has a value of some kind, be that an empty string or a value. Um, and, mm-hmm.
0: that's... and and I think it's totally reasonable to say I have sort of a never been set and now it's set kind of a distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is usually where people are like, I I can't just not have null my language. I need it for for these kinds of things, right? I have a variable that's never been set to something, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, but there functional languages like Haskell, PureScript have a way around this, so. Um, the, the most simple example of this is the maybe type. And this is a type. Um, this is. Well, f- let's, let's go into something more basic first, because I think that this is, this
1: is going to wrap up a lot of concepts at once. So, okay. it, but one thing that the type systems in Haskell and PureScript allow for is you can express types where the type itself is kind of also the value, right? Like, it, like its mere presence is, is just its value. So, for example, like if you were to declare your uh, Boolean type, it can be true or false. And capital T true and capital F false are both also types, but they're like just freestanding types that don't have anything else associated
0: with them. Uh, Yeah, I would make a slight distinction. So, technically, they're not types, they're data constructors, and you can distinguish between them, but they're both the Boolean type. Right. But you kind of, I mean, this is. This is a little broad, but you can kind of think of them as unique. They're certainly unique values. Um, mm-hmm. You can kind of use them the way you might use subclasses to distinguish between two kinds of a thing in an OO language. Uh, but there there actually is only one type there. Um, but they are, I, I get what you're saying here, and you're totally right. Right, anytime it says that there's a Boolean, there could be a true or a false right. in there. And so, um, yeah, And and the name for these is algebraic data types. Yeah
1: and it's it's it can be dramatic it doesn't have to be just two of like the same thing um you can go off and say well it could be this one simple thing like a string or it could be this complex user record thing right that that has like you know they own books and they have a shopping cart and like all of those things can hang off of that and you can represent that all with one type
0: right so you can say uh, for example uh in the application i'm working on we have Actions that can happen. So if anyone's familiar with like uh, Redux or um, or even React, uh, when you do like a dispatch, you have like a type in there. And you can say, uh, often that's communicated as a string. If you were in like C sharp, you'd probably make this an enumeration. So think of algebraic data types, ADTs, as one way to think about it is as an enumeration, where the enumeration of values. so clearly it can only be one of the th- enumeration, right? You can't have an, a value that's Three things, unless it's like a bit field mm-hmm. or something. And then that's that's something right. different. But you have enumeration. It's got like five things in it, right? Um, but those five things are just one bit of information. It's either we have A, B, C, or D, or E, right? It's not like that's all you, you can distinguish within the enumeration. But what if A, B, C, D, and E each uh, could carry with them an arbitrary amount of data? So you could say, I have an A that has a string or a B that has 3 ints, or a C, which has this like whole object- uh, structure that's associated with it, or a D that's a Boolean, which itself is true or false, right? <laughs> or, right. you know, an E, which is, you know, something else. And so right. each one of those uh, options in your enumeration has a payload of data with it. And this allows you to start then modeling the, you don't just say like, I don't have something, you can start saying why you don't have something, right?
2: Um, how, how does that? Um, I'm I'm following what you mean. Where uh, it's like an enum with different types of values they're returning. But how does that allow you to say this object doesn't have something? Is that perhaps is that e e is this object doesn't have something, and this is why because we have an int and a string there or something?
0: Right, e right. could be unset. Okay.
2: There's a there's a
1: semantic
0: in there that they call
1: maybe or is it is it? It's not I, just either. It,
0: well, maybe has two possibilities nothing or just some value so maybe mm, right the, the, just as like the wrapper uh yeah ju- just as the data constructor and it takes it It itself is parameterized, so it has a payload of data that it takes with it so just takes some value and you know of type a whatever a is uh, you know t if you're in c sharp. um so if you have a nothing you just it's just nothing. There's no payload with that. But if you have adjust, you have a value that goes with it. So now in your your database, your data structure whatever, you have a spot that's a maybe, let's say, let's just take string, right? It's not string that's nullable. So it's null or string, it's a maybe, um, which indicates just by looking at it that it could possibly not have a value. Like we're baking into the type the fact that this thing might not have a value.
1: And you're only ever talking about things in terms of that maybe, and when you want to actually do something with like a string or whatever that's sitting inside that maybe, you have to unwrap it. It sounds very similar to a nullable string, um, except that. But it's it's enforced at the compiler level, and that's where it's different. There's no like auto boxing or conversion mm-hmm. type stuff. It's there. There there will be a string here if you ask for it,
0: and um, and it, it can be nothing. But if it's a just it will have a string with it it'll have a string associated with it and if you don't like those two options of nothing and just you just make your own like you want to have your own you want to have database connection database connection result and we have success with the connection object we have uh failure with an error code we have canceled with some you know other code. like we can create as many cases as we want to and now now you call your connection and what you get back is like a very rich meaningful result of why we are in this state not just null or an exception like
1: i don't think uh, haskell does this but pure does right like it forces you to take on all of the possibilities that your type system expresses
0: right um so right that's the whole um you you have to account for every possibility that the type could take on so if you have a uh one of these adts with three possibilities a b and c and you say what happens if you get an A back and a B back, but you don't say what happens when you get a C back, in PureScript, that's a uh, that's an error now. Because what would happen if you got a C back? You'd have no code to process it. You wouldn't be returning a value. You're required to return a value, <laughs> and the whole thing comes crashing down. So that actually becomes a, a, an exception, like a runtime error runtime run error i thought compl- that was a com- oh, sorry. that's a compiler it error it used to be a runtime error it's now a compiler error in uh, in yeah. the newer version i think haskell gives it, you a warning it's a warning right? yes in haskell yeah. and and it becomes a runtime error um where PureScript has become been bumped up to a, a compiler error now you can say kind of like that better you can say and for anything else, I do this. You're always allowed to to, to do that kind of a thing. Yeah, there's, like there's, a like a, there's an
1: everything else yes, expression. there's an everything
0: else. Yeah. And so you can just say, if I get an A back, I want to do this. If I get anything else, just log it or you know do whatever. But the point is that the language has forced you to account that it could be A, B, or C. Uh, versus most of the time, you just say, oh, now I'm going to get a string back. And you don't think, and you certainly aren't forced to say, oh, or I get a null. And I should probably check for that. Except you don't check for it until it blows up in your face, and then you go at the null check.
1: It's kind of like um, how many times have you ever gotten like a list of things back, and then you always just grab the first element blindly? Right. Like I think I did that today because I'm a bad mm-hmm. person. But it, it's
2: kind of along the
1: same lines of that. It's there's like, a chance. There's... You probably have a reasonable expectation that it's going to be there,
0: but it's not yeah, always going to be there. There's
2: no first element.
0: Right. right. And in PureScript, uh, head. Which gives you the first element, uh, returns maybe that element, so it's explicit in the type oh, that that's clever. Yeah, the default Haskell does not do that, which is bad. There are other uh, implementations of that function that do the right thing.
2: It does sound so. First thought is, um, and uh, speaking honestly here, it sounds a little obnoxious. It sounds like, oh, gee, so I have to code for every possibility every time I do anything. It's gonna take, that is correct. So it's gonna take forever, but. At, at the, uh, on, another, on the other hand, it's going to give you code that doesn't give you errors.
0: Yeah, and what this...
2: Yeah, yeah. when when do you want to be fixing that?
1: That Because you're going to put that code in at some point anyways. Do you want it to be before or after you
0: have egg on your face? <laughs> right, before it blows up in production. So here's, <laughs> right. the, here's the thing about it. Um, y- you're right. It does seem like more work because it is forcing you to do more work. It's forcing you to handle cases that you could loosely just ignore are going to happen. Um you know, in a in another type system. But as a result, um what you can get out of it is is that you can get a guarantee that it is impossible to have a runtime exception. Like that is a preposterous guarantee for C sharp to make <laughs> or JavaScript to make, right? right? That is ridiculous. PureScript makes that claim. PureScript says if you uh don't like lie to the type system. There's ways you can like circumvent it and lie if you don't do anything weird like that, and there's no bugs that are in the implementation of the the functions you're calling. Uh, not like uh, bugs that you wrote in your program, but like underlying implementation bugs. Mm-hmm. It is impossible to have a runtime exception. Because it forced you to handle the cases, and it knows where nulls can... It, not nulls. It knows where uh, you are allowed to like not have a value. And it can trace all that through the type system. And it can tell you, oh, right here, it is possible you will not have a value because you're calling head of a list. And, you know, clearly some lists are empty. <laughs> and So it's possible not to have an element. Uh, and, y- you know, I'm going to force you to deal with that. Yeah. And that is an amazing property. The idea of, like, I cannot have a runtime exception. I bet people would pay a lot of money to get that in C-sharp.
2: Yeah, in exchange <laughs> for the programmer, you know, the irritation of I can't be lazy, you do get a nice payback.
0: You do get a nice video. And fortunately, uh, Peerscript has very nice facilities for dealing with that to make it much less uh of a pain in the butt than it would be in, say, like a C sharp. Like there is structure to make this easier. Um so you know, you're not just like hung out on your own to like, oh, you know, sucks to be you. <laughs> Have fun over there dealing with all these cases.
1: There's a couple of things, right? Like there's I've seen some looping mechanisms that like I take a list of maybes. And i only I, I always discard the nothings that are in there right like only operate or i do i do nothing on the nothings. right only
0: operate on the values that actually came back right is that what you're saying here yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah that's an example of um sort of like this machinery that that exists where you can very um efficiently say um, you know you can work with like the idea of a nothing or a just uh, in a very convenient way where there's a function that just gives you the, the list back with all the nothing's gone. <laughs> so you can just ignore that those are there, right? And just operate on the justs. Um, and that right. kind of hints at this like last element of what these pure static languages give you is sort of more generalized uh, tools to deal with a lot of common things. So mm-hmm. one thing you brought up earlier was like a map, right? And there's like map and filter and reduce or some languages call it fold. Uh, in C sharp, these would be called uh, map would be called select filter would be called where and reduce slash fold would be called aggregate. Those are the the link names for those. And in link, you can write your own collections and implement I enumerable and get uh, get some of those functions, right? You can you can add those in yourself. In uh, a pure static language, they have these things called type classes. And those are classes. Or, I think you cut out there. Sorry, type classes. Um, And those are ways of expressing sort of a set of capabilities that a a type can have in a very general way. And so um, an example of this would be, um, for example, map. So the idea that something can be mapped over, and clearly that's like a list or an array or or things like that. But it's also um, a maybe. So the maybe we just talked about, is mappable. You can map over it. And the way that works is um if the value is a nothing, we clearly don't map over it. We don't apply any function to it. But if mm-hmm. it's a just, we do apply a function to the thing inside and so we can map over all kinds of things we can map over io operations we can map over streams we can map over all kinds of things that generally you only map over like arrays in most languages that we can map over all sorts of things that we can create um you can map over asynchronous operations like there's it's very uh it's quite varied and that kind of like high level abstract machinery really allows you to write things and the community to write things once they get reused a ton so aaron you're talking about um it's really annoying to handle like this case of like man this thing could be empty and that thing could be empty and like ugh, i have to just like keep checking at all these points that this thing might be empty mm-hmm. and, and god help you if you need to like get five of them and then if all of them are good uh then go forward right you know get a get b get c and if all of them came back okay because they're all maybes because they could fail yeah uh, then move forward uh, and and on its own that's correct <laughs> that would be a huge pain but there's a common pattern of, here
2: good because a map you can you can work around that or work through that much more easily
0: oh yeah so that's one pattern map but there's other patterns like um Isn't like f map one of those f um, f map is the specific name of the function for things that are mappable right the the fancy word for this is functor a thing that is a functor is just a thing that has map implemented for it so if you have map your functor. That's that's all there is to it. Um, I,
1: I thought there was something you could do where you have, like, if you could go from an A to a B and then you have a a list of maybe A's then you can apply this to it and then you'll get a list of maybe B's. Yes.
0: I mean, that's just, that's map. I don't know what that's called. That's just applying, uh, well, that's mapping, that's applying a map to the things inside the list, Right. That's actually a map inside a map right. is what you would end up doing for that exact situation. Um, they're, they're, that's not like a specific concept. That's just kind of like using map twice. Once to go across the elements in the list and then once to apply the map. Because you have a, a thing inside a thing, right? You have a maybe inside a list. So the first map goes across the list and the second map goes a, across the elements inside the maybe. Oh,
1: you, you don't have something that automatically traverses it. So I can say like... I have a list of maybe's. Apply this thing to the in, to the inside of the just portion, but keep everything else
0: the same. Yeah, could, well, I mean, you do. It's called composition. You just compose two maps together, and then you map inside the map. But anyways, that that does not come up very often, uh, or nearly as often as some of these other cases, like just mapping over, for example, uh, a maybe that you get back. Um, but so that's one example of a high level concept this idea of a mappable thing is all over the place. They're super, super common and lots of things. If a thing can reasonably be made mappable, can be turned into a functor, it is. And then there's all these functions that just work because it's a functor. And similarly, you can do things that are chainable. So I have a thing and if it succeeds, I go on to the next thing, right? We've seen pattern, this is a fairly common pattern, right? Like A.B.C, you expect uh, A to succeed and then you go on to B and then you go on to C. Um, Unfortunately, in most languages, if any A or B fails, then you just blow up with a you know
2: uh, C never happens.
0: Yeah, C never happens and you blow up because you tried to call something on null or or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like like B fails and it returns null instead of the actual value that you're expecting back. And therefore dot C on null is you know bad news. But uh, there's a concept of something that's chainable. So you can say, uh, go do this thing that might succeed. You know, it's it's a maybe kind of result. And then if we got back adjust, go to the next step. And get the next one and then if that succeeds go to the next one and then if that succeeds do this thing with all three of them
1: you're not like doing that check every time you're
0: not doing that check that check is written once for maybe so the semantics of maybe are if you got adjust back go ahead and go to the next thing in the chain if you got a nothing back then the whole then the final result is nothing just hand back nothing because we can't make a meaningful answer right
1: scott walshon has a great talk on that that's is like railroad
0: driven development thing or whatever yes so scott walshon has a, a website a for fun and profit that we'll link to um and that is uh, a a re- really good talk yeah
1: that talks really good he's a very good person who reaches across the the gap there right and speaks to you as like here's some real actual code that you would write in imperative land and here let's go and do all the, like the error checking and stuff and see what that looks like and here's how we would write the functional yes version.
0: and the secret sauce here is this big scary thing monad monad just means chainable if you can chain things along you and i mean there's slightly more to it but basically that's all there is if you can chain things along it's a monad monads are this structures where you know you they're sequenced you know do a then b then c then d and the semantics of the maybe monad, are that if you get a nothing, you just bail out. And if you get a just, you keep going. But you can make your own, you can make asynchronous operations that are monads or uh, synchronous operations or, you know, a database uh, connection monad where you do this transaction, then that transaction, then that transaction. And if they fail, or let's say operations within a transaction, right? And you can say, if any of these fail, I want to revert the whole thing. And that can be like baked into the semantics of what a monad is, but the definition kind of like the, the interface kind of like from a C sharp perspective, the interface of monad is the same. The semantics are taken on by how it's implemented by the different data types. And that is insanely powerful and very difficult to express if you haven't like seen it and like dealt with it. But the idea is you have very few abstractions that are very powerful and get reused in a ton of places. And that is completely the opposite of my experience with like OO, where where you make custom objects for everything. And you make like an interface that's only used by that one object so that you can like mock it.
2: In, yeah, there's no expectation you're going to be reusing the same information, you know, same same tools. Right. Else. It's
0: not like we have seven interfaces in C sharp, and basically everything gets done by those seven interfaces. But right. like
2: seven thousand,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> or however many classes you have, right? And in um in Haskell and, and PeerScript and whatnot, you actually do have a very small number of equivalent to interfaces. I mean, I'm gonna I'm air quoting it. It's not a perfect uh, analogy, but you can kind of generally think of it as an interface that you implement. Um, you have just a few of those that are very powerful and get a lot done. You get a huge amount of benefit out of them. And so that takes a lot of your kind of like boilerplatey stuff, gets reduced and boiled down to one of these interfaces, like traversable or, you know, you know mappable, which is functor, or chainable, which is monad, or appendable. You know, like you can take two things and mush them together and get a new thing, like a list or an array or strings or whatever. That's called a monoid or more specifically a semi-group. And they're terrible names. I totally wish we would just ditch these names and pick appendable. But once you do the mapping and you know what it means, you can just say mappable whenever you see monoid, and then you know what it is. And that's hugely beneficial. Because if um, you want to have two things that you can mush together, you just make them a monoid. And there you go. Like, And then anything that takes a monoid now works for your stuff. And there's a surprising amount of work you can get done through those interfaces, especially when you're pushed to express things purely in terms of those interfaces.
1: I thought one of the interesting things about all that uh, taxonomy of types that we've talked about is that typically there's like proofs that are backing them.
0: Um. Yeah.
1: Like like mathematical or logical. They, they have laws, laws and stuff that are yeah. sitting behind them. And yeah, they're they're like laws. Not I have an idea and I think this works. And and the the interesting thing about that is. When you're leaning on that, there's also these like assumptions that come along with it. And the application to that can be things like, you need to guarantee a certain thing. You're you're making a, a driver or some kind of software that, that operates medical equipment. Lives are all, literally on the line. Like, a bug means dead people. Having these proofs can really help you there, it seems like.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to overstate the power of the type system. I think... Ha- Haskell not, type has system is not capable of like proving <laughs> strong things. They're, they're pretty weak.
2: I think Logan just said <laughs> the opposite. I Logan know. said that the type system will save lives. I do I
0: do think we are headed in that direction. <clears throat> I think that is the future of static functional pure uh, static pure functional programming for sure. Is more and more in that direction. But right now, as it stands, there are absolutely laws. Um most languages cannot uh, force you to prove that you're upholding those laws. <laughs> There's a class of language called dependently typed programming languages of which Idris is probably one of the most uh, common um, that can uh, force you to c- can express that like in the type system but generally speaking mm-hmm. you can't really um, do that currently like in Haskell but there are laws and, and it's understood by the community that if you write something that is a, a functor it needs to operate in a certain way right if you map identity function over the the thing you get the same thing back right so, you know there's these these common things and that just by itself is really handy just having this shared convention of um i know what a functor is <laughs> or you know a mappable and and it obeys these certain rules these laws and people will call you out like hey that's not law abiding like why why did you implement it that way <laughs> and you know it shouldn't pass code review sort of a thing so those laws are definitely valuable
2: like, hmm. Um, I can tell by your enthusiasm here that this is a big part of functional programming, and probably something we're going to be. Yeah, visiting. yeah,
0: and and we should uh, we should wrap up for now. But yeah, this is um, where you start to get into. I can express things once that used to be ad hoc, like one off. Like before, I had to implement it kind of for each thing in its own way that was incompatible with everything else, and now I can express it once, like chainable things. I can express that once in a way that makes it just automatically accessible to this huge ecosystem of of functions that know how to work in this way and communicates its intent to other people if i say oh blah 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 is a monad i don't you don't have to tell me anymore i know a lot about what your thing does already like i know the laws it has i know kind of what its capabilities are i know where it sits on the power spectrum and and what i can know about it versus what it's capable of doing um and and there's there's many more other than just that one but it's definitely not like super People make this out to be like super big complex stuff. If you've ever seen dot chain or dot and then, you know, in a in a language, you're probably programming in a monad style, even though you don't realize it. And certainly, we all do thing plus thing or thing append to thing, right? That happens all the time. And so, you know, if I said, "Oh yeah, you're programming things monoidally," or that's a monoidal structure, it sounds weird and it and it feels weird, but that that's all. I mean. Being able to give a name to that is super handy. in the same way it's that, just new vocabulary. It's new vocabulary. in the same way that, like we talked about last time, how a for loop um sort of canonizes this concept of uh, a looping operation or a while loop rather, canonizes this idea of like when you get down here, you do a comparison and then you jump back to a label, right? Like in assembly, you you at some point, you do loops right <laughs> but you have to like build it yourself and you don't have a name for it and then we have a while loop and now everyone you can say oh i'm gonna while loop here and then later we have for loop and we can say oh, i'm gonna for loop and that tells you more about what you're gonna do and you know gives more structure to it and i don't have to explain you know the big idea of a for loop to you once you understand what that does we're kind of just like continuing in that direction but instead of doing things for very primitive stuff like loops we're talking about of general properties of thing it's appendable it's mappable it's chainable things like that hmm. So any final thoughts? No,
2: nothing here. I thought we did a good job covering things.
0: Yep. Hopefully we'll get some emails from people. Again, contact at lambdacast.com. Send in what you want to hear about. I think going forward, we're going to um, we're done with the big overview stuff. Next time we'll go into much smaller um, single topic kind of discussions about uh, things that are useful, probably starting from the the kinds of things you can do in in JavaScript and C-sharp, like uh, currying, a partial application or, or things like that. Does that sound good?
2: That sounds good. Thanks for listening, everybody. Sounds good.
0: All right, yeah, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.
2: See ya. Bye.